Howdy friends, welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, the Toddzilla X-Pod. EscapingTheCave.com is a website, Facebook page out there too, if you want to go look for it. I'm Todd. Hi. Welcome to episode number 95. We are slowly, consistently, steadily approaching that big milestone of 100 episodes. Looks like it's going to hit, what, sometime in December. 100 episodes. I got a catalog now. Record date on this one is September, September, November the 15th, 2020. I'd say this is off to a rip-roaring start, but it's already recorded. This is a long, expansive episode once again. This is actually, I I considered breaking this one up into two podcasts, because there are essentially two episodes here, almost evenly split. Now, the first part of this is a little more philosophical, a little more psychological, sort of a break, really, uh, from probably the politics that we've all been inundated with ever since the election. We do start talking about how the afterglow has become the aftermath. I mentioned in the episode how the episode that we did last week felt very positive, optimistic, in the immediate aftermath of Joe Biden's victory speech. But how by Monday, that episode felt almost quaint, like a snapshot in time of a very specific but very short moment in time, and how that's gone now. Among other things, we start talking about independent thought, original thought, and how the cliche thought processes, the automatic thought processes that most of us rely and depend upon, when those safe cognitive cliches start to break down and we can no longer lean upon them, what happens? Talk about 99 flavors. You know, the Baskin-Robbins thing. (laughs) And how too many choices, counterintuitively, is a bad thing. Something I've talked about on the show before. Paralysis by analysis. When you have too many things to choose from, It's hard to decide, and it's easier just to crutch on what you've always chosen. How does the Baskin-Robbins philosophy play into information when we're inundated via data overload? We talk about wisdom and how it's pretty much impossible for youth to be infused with wisdom. This is quite important in the first part of this episode. We start talking about the difference between what should be and what is. It ties into the wisdom conversation as well. But there's something that in the editing process going through that I realized I completely missed during the course of the conversation. And that's how this what should be, what could be, this idealistic thinking that's typical of so many young people. What happens when that becomes a moral imperative. What should be when that becomes that moral imperative that I've talked so much about on this podcast. We completely gloss over it in this episode, but I want you to think about that when it comes along, and I invite you to go listen to the bonus supplemental episode that I released a couple of weeks back on the moral imperative. Joan Didion's essay on morality. It's an obvious tie-in. We also talk a little bit about the internal litigating attorney. Heights Elephant, The Rationalizing Mind. Now, the second part of this episode will be clearly delineated while you're listening. You'll know when it started, okay? And it kicks in right around 48 and a half minutes after I stop talking here. This is really good. And we start the conversation with an analysis of why is it that Democrats lose even when they quote-unquote win? 
<sighs> Such an important chat. Such an important thing to talk about. Such an important thing to get our heads around. We also talk about the anatomy of green tea. How reality doesn't change regardless of your perception. Talk about marginalizing the moderate majority that we talked about last week. Yeah, maybe the moderate majority spoke. How could someone marginalize that? Or how could groups of people marginalize the moderate majority? Yeah, it could happen. In fact, Andrew Sullivan thinks it is happening. We get into that and then start calling for political prairie dogs. Also this week, one of our mainstream media puppets decided he'd finally talk about something I've been talking about for almost three years, how it's the people, at least partially responsible for where we are, supply and disinformation demand. And then we'll wrap it up with a nightmare scenario of competing demagogues, the special sauce. What is it about a demagogue? How is it that someone like Donald Trump could hold sway over so many people? And what if it happens simultaneously to the other side? Episode number 95. Hope you enjoy it. It's a coffee day. Mm-hmm. I think it's a tea day. It feels like a tea day to me. Is it? Yeah. These kind of days, it's like a nice cup of, you know, nice just straight black tea. I need some crack. That's that'll help. That'll help. <laughs> Caffeinated crack. That's yeah, what this is. that'll help. <laughs> <laughs> well, here we are. It's, uh, what, Sunday the 15th, right? Second half of November. Thanksgiving's mm-hmm. coming up. It's dreary outside, wet, gray, windy today. we got to play some November rain in this one. <laughs> this is a fun game we've started to play, isn't it? <laughs> Pick the bump. What kind of bump do we want? I think November Rain's a good place to start. It's got a nice long intro here. That's yeah, per- that is perfect. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> How do we start this today? I mean, we're a week out now, I guess. Well, uh, you know. From the afterglow. You know what I what I first, uh, I put the, the podcast together last week. Yeah, I sat down and listened to it. Enjoyed it. Felt good. Felt optimistic. Felt bright bright-eyed, you know? And then I went back and listened to it a little bit on my run on Monday. And mm-hmm. I realized that the tone of that episode, we were optimistic, we were hopeful. We were like, ah, normalcy, finally, it's here. <laughs> occurred to me, that's probably going to be a wonderful snapshot of a very specific, very short, minuscule moment in time. Because mm-hmm. by Monday and Tuesday, that optimism to me, personally, felt quaint and outdated mm-hmm. as soon as Monday hit. Uh, what were you feeling? What were you feeling on Monday? I was feeling shame. Yeah? Yeah. It, it, it's bizarre. It's, <laughs> I was feeling shame that I let myself get sucked into that optimism when I knew mm. better. Mm. This is, it reminds yeah. me of the, uh, the Trump election in 2016. Where, you know, I, I was pretty sure he had a chance of winning, and I got sucked into everybody else's optimism. And mm-hmm. then when it happened, I was sitting here thinking to myself as I sat underneath Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado Springs, you stupid <laughs> son of a bitch, you knew better. You knew better. Yeah. And you didn't listen to yourself. You got sucked into the narrative. You got sucked into the positivity vortex. Perhaps we have a show name. I like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's yeah. what I was feeling on Monday because I saw this. 
I saw this coming. I remember 2016, 2017, the beginning of it. And Mm -hmm. I should have known better. I feel like I should have known better. Well, we knew he wasn't going to leave, right? We knew he wasn't going to concede. And and I'm kind of with you. I don't think I felt shame. I felt disappointed. I didn't feel like I told you so or anything like that. I just felt like, here we go. We knew this was coming. The one thing that I guess the pundits do say that's probably correct is, you know, this administration, they they do tell you exactly what they're going to do. Oh, yeah. They telegraph (laughs) everything. And then they do it. And, uh, you know, what are we supposed to do, right? So we just have to wait it through. There's nothing we can do at this point but wait it through. And we know he's probably never going to concede. Does he show up to the inauguration? Who knows? Maybe. I, you know, I don't know. He it doesn't seem like that magnanimous kind of person. But but at some point, you know, come um, January 20th at noon, there will be a different president in the White House. Come hell or high water, that, it, that will be a fact. And um, we'll just have to wait this, this, this weird, uncomfortable period out. Yeah. I'm disappointed that – I don't know why I'm disappointed because it's perfectly predictable. But I'm disappointed that we're dragging this out. There's no need to drag it out. Biden's not getting the briefings that he needs. They're not doing the transition like they're supposed to. It's going to handicap the first couple months of his presidency. I guess on the bright side, he's he, this he, this isn't his first time at the rodeo. Uh, he served as vice president for eight years, so he knows how things work. It's not like he's coming in with you know, no experience other than hosting a reality show in a failed real estate business. Um, so there's that. So he can kind of come into that and be able to basically hit the ground running that way. But he's going to take a little time getting the information that he needs, you know, what's happened in the last four years, what's been going on uh, that he's not privy to, that's that's been classified, that nobody else is privy to, that only the president is privy to. So that's that's kind of scary. And then the whole, you know, this sort of mass uh, psychological issue that we're facing in the country, this mass anxiety that we're all feeling on both sides of the country. We have to talk about the country as two sides now, right? Because yeah, we are. <laughs> two countries. Uh, yeah. yeah, two countries. Yeah. And um, everybody's anxious, but for, you know, different reasons. And it's the uncertainty. And that uncertainty creates fear. Fear is just another name for anxiety. And here we are. Here we sit, not really being completely sure of what our future is going to be. This million MAGA march yesterday, I guess, was turned out to be fairly uneventful. I, I, I wasn't following the news that closely, but I didn't see any red alerts go out as far as anything happening. A violence um, or anything, no. I didn't either. Violence, yeah. I mean, the two sides were there, and it was apparently a fairly peaceful demonstration on both sides. Um, I guess the D.C. police did a good job of keeping everybody apart. Uh, so I think for me, I'm feeling like I'm feeling the anxiety like you are, uh, but uh, I think I'm choosing to trust the system and hoping and hoping in, 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 uh, that the system works its way out the Electoral College will meet on whatever day it is in December. I, I want to say December 8th. Uh, it sticks in my mind, the day after Pearl Harbor Day. Right. Um, and uh, and then they'll cast their votes, and that'll be over, and, and this will be done with, and we know that this administration will go out squawking and screaming and histrionic about uh, lost elections and stuff with zero proof and, and zero, uh, zero evidence of any sort that any – real impropriety went on anywhere other than some feelings being hurt. And that, that, that's, that doesn't count. 
So I guess I, I guess I mean, long long story short, I'm just trying to trust the system, yeah. and know that um, there'll be a new president on the on the twentieth. Does that mean that uh, it's going to be rainbows and puppy dogs after the twentieth? No, because there's still going to be depending on Georgia, but we kind of know how Georgia's going to go. Still going to be a, a, a Republican Senate uh, with Mitch McConnell in charge, which means you know that he's going to do everything he can to make Biden a one-term president. Well, he's uh, going to be I'm a sure. one-term president anyway. Isn't he? Yeah, but, you know, basically handicap him all, you know what I mean? Handicap everything. Democrats are going to have a one-term presidency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Unless the administration can pull out some really good stuff. Um, I don't see Kamala winning in 2024. I'd be pretty astonished if she didn't run as a a candidate, you know, from vice president to president. That just wouldn't make sense to me if she didn't run. She has to. We know, yeah, we we know that Biden's not going to. There's a lot of chatter about, um, you know, Trump saying that, and and the people in his administration saying that he wants to run again in 2024. He'll be 80 at that time, right? Yeah. So that would that would then make him the oldest president elected beyond Biden. But uh, but we have to assume though that he's not. Um, convicted of some felony between now and then by the oh, by he's the still subject of New York. There's chatter about him trying to pardon himself. Uh, well, he can pardon he himself office. from federal crimes, but right, he can't pardon state. himself from state crimes. Yeah, New York's awaiting. New York is the Southern District. Of New York is uh, is waiting for him. They've got some stuff to talk to him about, and um, he may exclude himself from the presidency that way. Yeah, you know, I don't think you. I don't. I don't know specifically, but I don't think you can be a felon and run for president. Can you? I have no idea. I mean, it's civics not, class with Todd and Brian. Not that they're not committing felonies while in office. I'm just saying to get there, I, I don't, don't think know. you can be a felon. I don't know. I don't know that you can or can't. <laughs> That's worth looking up. I've never heard that. I mean, it's a really no. good question. I'm going to look it up. Could G. Gordon Liddy, is he a felon? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he He's didn't been, get pardoned. He didn't get to have his record expunged or anything like that. Can a felon run for president? I just wrote, can a felon, and it said, run for president. It just filled <laughs> a it in. A lot of people are wondering. <laughs> Apparently, people are well, wondering. What do people want to know? <laughs> now, that might be something you can just leave in the show. Can, yes, a person convicted of a felony can run for the office of the president of the United States. The reason for this is that no part of the Constitution prohibits a felon from contesting. The Constitution spells out that all you have to do to become the president is to be 35 years old, a native-born American, a resident of America. Also, he can only serve two terms of four years each at the maximum. Uh, but if he or she has already served up to two years of another person's tenure, he or she can only go for one more term. So apparently LBJ. what I was thinking, so for a total of six years. So what I was thinking before, you know, I was thinking that if Kamala ran, say we, we had talked before about Biden leaving office early and, yeah. and then she would finish the term, then she could run for two of her own terms. I was mistaken. She can still only have one term. What if she? Um, what if she leaves in his third year, though? But it's up to two years, so. Um, so technically, she could to, finagle ten, potentially ten years of the presidency if she so takes over in his third year. Right? Already served up to two years of another person's term. She can only go. So apparently, um, it's it's kind of the ba- backwards. If you're if you're over two years, so if you've served most of another president's term, then you can run for your own term. <laughs> Your own terms, I guess. That's weird. LBJ was the, the uh, one example that I could think of because he took over for Kennedy when he was shot in 63, mm-hmm. uh, won the election in 64, and could have run again but chose not to in 68. That's right. That's why I'm thinking that. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, so apparently there was enough There was enough time in the uh, 
Or there was a right amount of time in that. Right, because uh, Kennedy was shot in November of 63, which would have been late in his third year. Mm-hmm. So then he could have had uh, his own two terms. So that nine, he could have had sense. nine years. So I guess you're right. Technically, you can serve up to 10 years as president if you take over somebody else's term. So Yeah. yeah interesting. Very interesting. It says the only major negative effect, though, is that um, it hurts your character. Not <laughs> 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 that that matters, right? Right. Which can be leveraged upon your opponent. So, yeah. So a felon can run for president. So Were there even felonies back in 1789 or whatever this was when they wrote this? Were there, was uh, there anything considered a felony? I mean, why would the, they put when they that wrote in? the Constitution? Yeah. Well, they wouldn't. They didn't put it in the Constitution. It's an omission, right? So they're basically going off of at least from this document, which is – uh, this website called the Freeman Online. God only knows what else is uh, what else is on this site, mm. but it does just outline what the requirements are. It doesn't say there are any excluding factors in the Constitution. Do you get there the impression no... that the, the founding fathers, when they wrote this, even if there were felonies, let's let's go with you know the idea that there were felonies in the colonies at that point in time, that it would have that would even be a consideration. That they went under the assumption that the American people would never even consider a felon. Or president of the United, I find that a lot, a lot of a lot of stuff that I'm reading, a lot of people that are that I'm hearing talking about things that just were implied or assumed would never be done that are being done these days, mm-hmm. <laughs> were not right. addressed 250 years ago. No, and that's what's given um, the current administration sort of carte blanche to do whatever they want. Well, it's not written down, so fuck it, I'm going to do it. Right. You know, that's that's really the that's the that's the mode of operation, man. It really is. <sighs> There's, no, there's nothing written down against it, so I'm going to do it. I mean, like pardoning yourself. I guess honorable people in the past, if they were honorable in the 17 and 1800s, 1900s, uh, never considered the idea that, oh, a president might want to pardon himself for the crimes he committed in office. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, it didn't come up with Nixon, right? Right. I, you know, we, we're, in, we're, in new, we're in new territory. Yeah, this Terry whole, Cognito, we are drawing the map. As yeah, speak. Or, or, or in another way, um, going back to our original discussion about flight and in, in, uh, your history is uh, we're building the plane as we fly it. Yeah, we are. <laughs> we are Livingston in the, on the dark continent, in the heart of the dark continent, finding the yeah, source of know. the Nile. We have no idea where this river is going to lead us. I never thought I would be hearing conversations about the president pardoning himself, but there's nothing that says he can't. Nothing yeah. that says he can. Nothing says he can't. He has pardon authority, very broad pardon authority. Maybe this is the core and the crux of the, the uncertainty that we were talking about when we were, uh, to, to swing it back to the, I guess we've moved from the afterglow to the aftermath. And maybe that's the uncertainty of it because we are in a territory and on a track mm-hmm. that none of us have ever experienced. We've never had to even contemplate any of the things that are going on that are happening in reality on a daily basis. This is completely unfamiliar to everybody. Yeah, it really is. And we, you know, every, you can tell because everybody is struggling to find the language to talk about this stuff, right? Just to yeah. struggling to find the words to have discussions about what's going on right now, about your feelings, yeah. about the, the history. We just don't know even know how to talk about it. The country's been turned on its head by this administration in four years. Yeah, there's a, you know? this idea that I've tinkered around with. That most people, this idea isn't my idea. It comes from Mencken, I think, but that most people don't have original thoughts throughout the course of their lives. They just sort of recite something they've heard from somebody else. And it's really it's difficult for people to have original, organic, new thoughts. None of the cliches work anymore. None of those established cliches that we have emblazoned into our mind to answer questions about how things work or how things are going. And none of those things work now. We have to <laughs> no, sit here and we have to construct new sentences instead of recite yeah. them. Yeah, 
Yeah. It's the truth. We just don't know. We, you know, that, that's why we're struggling a lot of times weekly when we record this. So we just don't, I, I don't know how to talk about some of this stuff because we have no experience with it. Once in a while, somebody of particular brilliance comes along and can make a connection between two ideas and create a new thought, right? Mm-hmm. Or a new idea. And that's, that's how you get innovation and, and invention. But, uh, but you're right. Most of the time, most of us are just sort of rehashing stuff, ideas that we've uh, absorbed, you know, in some way or another, and, and then parroting them back after we've, they've gone through our own distillation process. I've tried to make the distinction a number of times over the last, uh, I don't know, 15 years. There's a difference between being clever and being smart. And, mm-hmm. you know, a clever person can recite something and mm-hmm. re-articulate it as his own brilliance. You know what I mean? But when you can't yeah. do that, the, the really intelligent, the really smart person comes up with his own content, his own original mm-hmm. content rather than plagiarizing mm-hmm. someone else and just simply rewording it a little bit. No, you're right. And yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard now. And maybe this, maybe this applies to why people are, are encamping themselves within these uh, liberal and conservative fundamentalist tents, yeah. because it's really hard to sit and look at everything. And I'll go back to data overload just a little bit. If you're confused and there's too much data coming in, you can't tell what's true, what's false. You can't construct your own original thoughts because you're too confused about too much stuff that's coming in that's conflicting. Mm-hmm. That you just quit. You just stop and say, okay, I'm with you. Well, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a social psychology phenomenon, you know, um, partly selection bias, you know. Uh, they've done studies on this sort of thing in consumer mm-hmm. psychology where, you know, if you go to the, say, for example, you go to the grocery store and you go to the cereal aisle and there's all of these, you know, I mean, you know the cereal aisle is like a mile long because there's 700 types of cereal you can buy. Yeah. What do you normally buy? The stuff you always buy because there's too many choices. There are too many choices. So if you narrow the choices, you tend to get you know more change. Yeah. But when people when people have too many choices or too many thoughts or it becomes unable to make a choice, I am applauding then, you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's all. That's all consumer psych and um, and social psychology. It's that, the Baskin Robbins theory. Ninety nine mm-hmm. flavors. So you go into the ice cream. I'm very familiar with what you're talking about. And you walk into the mm-hmm. in Baskin Robbins. The people with ninety nine flavors. Right? Do I have that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You mm-hmm. walk in and you look. Oh, that looks good. Oh my God, that looks really good too. Oh, that looks so good. And it gets to the point where you're so overwhelmed with choices that I think I read or I understood it to mean that you're afraid that when you choose something that you're going to realize you made a mistake because of all. All of these choices laid out yes. for you and you get yep. into this paralysis of analysis because yep. there's too many things to choose from and you can't possibly. Also one of the biases that you'll find in social psychology. Um, and then what you do is you end up walking out of there with butter pecan because that's what you always, always get. I know I like this. I know this is not a mistake. I may like that more, but what if I don't? Then I will be disappointed with my, I don't know, cherry pecan when I get into the car. <laughs> and I will wish that I had gotten my butter pecan and it will yeah. ruin my day. Yeah, what if it's too sweet? What yes. if it's, uh, yeah, you know. Let's talk about you- that. Let's talk yeah. about that because I, I think that you can apply that to Netflix. You can apply that to so many things. You can apply that to your news sources. That it goes beyond the politics. I mean, we are inundated. I have a, I wish you could see this. You haven't been in here since I rearranged, but I probably got 27 books sitting on a shelf right next to me that are all at least loosely related to the stuff that we've talked about. If I were to decide, if I had to walk over to this table and decide which book I was going to pull off of there, Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't, I find myself doing this all the time. I'll sit there and look at my books. Okay. Which direction do I want to take this today and not be able to decide? 
It's true. I have I'm, I have this exactly the same problem in that I've got about seven or eight books that I really need to read that I've bought, and I'm like, I really want to read this book. And then they sit on the shelf because I can't pick which one I want to read because I feel like, uh, you know, I'm going to feel like, well, I, I should read this one or, yeah. or, or I'm really missing out on something if I don't read this one. So they sit on the shelf and collect dust practically unopened. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. <laughs> so I, I understand what you're saying. Too many please. choices, too much information. And a lack, or or even to bring it home even more, it's everybody knows this effect. Going to a full refrigerator and opening the door and standing there while all the cold air leaks out, <laughs> trying to decide that what you want to eat, and then deciding, oh, there's nothing to eat. I love the stuff that's on Netflix. I love that there's so much stuff on there. But every time I turn that program on, all I do for an hour is scroll through, trying to decide what it is I want to invest an hour of my time in, and I usually <laughs> end up watching nothing. Because I get so frustrated or I've wasted too much time, it's too late, I need to get to bed, something down that line or something else distracts me and I don't bother uh, watching anything. So what about this? What about the downside of too many consumer or informational choices? How big of a factor do you think that is in, in how many different ways? How does that affect us? Wow, that's a huge question and a huge conversation. I mean... I think it affects us deeply because we end up finding our, our niche, right? We find the thing that we like, and that's the kind of the thing that we watch, right? Like you were talking about with Netflix. You go to Netflix and you binge a show. How often have you binged a show that you've seen four or five times already? Breaking Bad. Um, when the, of me, it's been 11 times for Breaking Bad. Yeah. And when there, when there are hundreds of other shows you've never seen, right? Yeah. But I don't know. Do I want to commit to this show, or is this? Yeah. You know, am I going to get into this? Have I missed that? So no, it's a it's a huge effect. We just we have too much choice. We have too many choices. And sticking with the Netflix analogy, with streaming services, right? Too many channels, too many streaming services. How many services are you paying for that you never look at because all the stuff that you already like is on another service? So why bother? It's it's human nature. It's not anything new. Um, although net, we do have more choice now than we probably ever had. Um, not only with entertainment, but with purchases, with, you know, going back to the cereal with, you know, just groceries that we can choose from. You end up choosing kind of the same stuff all the time, stuff you grew up with, right? Stuff that, um, that, that has connected with you in the past. Um, it's, the, it's the bias effect that I can't remember the name of it where we don't necessarily like to try new things. We like to stick with what we, we know. Is that an age thing? Uh, well, it could be. I think only just off the top of my head thinking that just based on experience of, um, you know, kind of getting, I don't want to go the old dog, new tricks routine, but kind of, you know, as you age, you, you, you lock into your likes and dislikes and you know what you don't like and you know what you like. So you, you kind of stick with it. Well, this is the old um, thing from radio. They used to tell us that I, I remember somebody talking about a consultant or some programming guy who was saying that there's an age where you stop looking forward and you start looking backward, and they apply this mm -hmm. to people listening to the radio back in the day anyway, mm -hmm. and you start getting retrospective. So you want the stuff that, w that you enjoyed when you were younger, mm -hmm. that has this sort of emotional connection to a time in your life in the past, whereas when you're younger, you're really interested in everything that's new, you know, in yeah. contemporary and hip and moving forward, this progressive sort of mentality that you have. At well, some point yeah. it stops. That's why I was asking about the age thing. Is that, does that apply yeah. beyond music? 
I think so. I think it applies in just about everything um, because, like I said, you you find what you like and you stick with it. But also, um, things from your past give you good feelings. I mean, there's a reason they call certain things comfort food, right? Right. There's uh, foods that you grew up with that you really like. Maybe there's a recipe that you particularly liked when you were a kid and just love that food. And it, it's really just part of, of, of growing up. But on a psychological level, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel comfortable. And um, it also validates your history a little bit. So going back and looking at things that, that you grew up with and, and having those things, like once in a while, I can't resist but buy a box of Apple Jacks. Man, I fucking love Apple God, Jacks. so good. Right? <laughs> but I never buy them as an adult. But once in a while, I want a, I want a box of Apple Jacks really bad. And I suppose if I really took the time uh, and wondered, why do I want these Apple Jacks right now? It probably has very little to do with the deliciousness of Apple Jacks. It probably has more to do with how I'm feeling in the moment. Maybe I'm feeling I'm having some insecurity or some anxiety about something. And these Apple Jacks take me to a time when I didn't yes. feel that way. You yes, know what I mean? I when I didn't feel anxious and, and when I didn't feel... Uh, afraid, right? All I had to do was get up in the morning and watch Bugs Bunny cartoons and eat a giant mixing bowl full of Apple Jacks and a half a gallon of milk. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and that that was that that's how it was when you're you know when you're 11, 12, 13 years old. During that time, everything is really nice. You know, the the question that I I feel being begged to be asked is taking all this what we're just talking about as far as the effect of age and applying that to politics because there's mm-hmm. this this well-known fact that younger people are progressive. Younger Mm -hmm. people tend to be more liberal, and then something happens as people grow older. They hit a certain age, and they become much more conservative, just generally Mm -hmm. speaking. Not everybody. You know, there are outliers here and there. But how does that factor in? What's the connection? What's the correlation? Uh, I think on the surface, there's a, that's a whole conversation too, but I think on the surface, the first thing that comes to mind is as you get older, you have more to lose. And a protect what you've earned. And so new ideas feel a little dangerous, maybe. I don't I don't know. I, I know what works for me, and I'm not sure that I want to do what works for you. But when you're younger, you're still kind of trying to try things out and figure out. And nothing wrong with either one of these. I'm not casting any kind of judgment on either one of these ideas. I think it, I think you're right. I think it's, it's, it's really intuitive of you to nail it down to a lot of ways to an age thing, right? Um, as you age, you get some wisdom. You have some experience with history. Nothing against the younger folks that might be listening, but the wisdom, the age uh, difference, it just isn't there. Uh, when you're younger, you don't have experience with as much failure. The world hasn't beaten you up as much. And so you have these idealistic notions of, of what the world should be, not what's possible. What you think it could be and what's possible are two different things. We, <laughs> As you age, I think you realize what the possibilities are and what the possibilities aren't. Right, What's and you've been bitten. Pop- you've been bitten enough over the the course of decades, yeah. To see how these, I'm trying to be as unoffensive as I possibly can when I say this, but these utopian dreams, dreamland. We all have dreams. We're 18, 19, 20, mm-hmm. 21 years old of how our life is going to go and mm-hmm. how it's going to proceed, and how we are going to get there. And then mm-hmm. by 30, 35, we see how reality doesn't line up with that most of the time. And we see this, right. I think, in, in generalized overarching themes throughout the world, throughout society. And at some point, you realize how unrealistic these dreams are. And you become, I think, a little cynical, a little jaded, 
right? Maybe, maybe depending on how you look at it. But I think that happens, you know, after about 37, maybe 37 to 45, you start feeling that cognitive dissonance of potentiality versus reality. Yeah. And, uh, and you have to reconcile that. And I think by the time you get into, you know, your late forties, early fifties, you know, you, it's not that, it's not that you're jaded or surly or I don't know what the word is. Um, but you're just, you just have a different view of what's possible. Um, yes, you know, when you get older, would you like to see certain, you know, certain things happen like free healthcare and, and a draw down the military and a utopian society and all these other things? Yes, it would be nice. But the reality is right. we can't, we can't do that. Yeah. The truth um, is what is, what should be and it's is hard a fantasy. To explain that. Let me just bring a little biology into it. Yeah. You know, a person's, you know, the executive functioning is, is in their frontal lobes. Your frontal lobes really aren't done developing until you're about 30 years old. Your frontal lobes control, like I said, your executive functioning, which is sort of the orchestra conductor of your brain. It's also your rational brain, right? So, so the, the, the idea that you, you've got a fully developed mind when you're in your 20s, just is, is just not not the case, and so you don't have those those the, that sort of rationality that you would have as you grow older. Your brain, your those frontal lobes aren't quite there yet, and mm-hmm. it gives you the inability to. Um, I'm trying to trying to figure out a, a good way to say it because I, I don't really have the words for it, but you don't quite have the maturity to understand how the world actually works and the yeah. good and the bad and and the bad side of the world. I'm pretty optimistic, but th- but there's a lot of bad in the world too, and you have to come to understand that. And that's why things like um, the Green New Deal, um, all that kind of stuff, great great idea. I think on paper it looks like great, but how how are you going to make that work? How are you how are you going to pay for that? Or or even healthcare for all, Medicare for all sounds great. Now what are you going to do with those hundreds of thousands of unemployed insurance company workers? That's the difference between what should be, uh, being what should be as a fantasy and what is as reality. You know, it's the old Lady yeah, Bruce are, line. Uh, it does. It, we should be able to have free health care in a lot of people's minds. We should be able to pra- pass something or enact something like the the Green New Deal. We, that should be yeah. the reality. That's utopian thinking. It's imaginary yeah. thinking. What yeah. is is the reality. And how do you get there? We're saying pretty much the same thing, but I'm taking this back to this, I guess, a cliche or a a mantra that I've been using on the show for a long time. And it it is taken from Lenny Bruce. What should be is a fantasy, a terrible, terrible lie someone gave the people long ago, Mm -hmm. you know, And, and to expect that to always be possible or always be brought into reality. If only you try hard enough and you activize long enough is it's childish. And I think you hit a certain point in time that you realize that yeah. enough experience, you see enough dreams dashed, enough of your own, enough of other people, some political, some social, however you want to look at it, you understand the human nature does not always agree with and cooperate with your idea of what should be. I guess you could just call that practical wisdom. It's very difficult, almost impossible. I'm sorry, children. It's impossible for children to be wise. They don't <laughs> have the life experience. Wisdom is earned, not granted. You know, they don't have the experience or the frontal lobes, yeah. yet, you know, so it's just, it's just, it's just not there. But they do come up with some great ideas, I got to say, and what should be, and that I'm sure that probably drives policy in some ways. Sure. Like, you know, that, that's a, that, that's, that, that's a great um, idea, something that we can strive toward, but it's not something that the country is just going to turn on a dime. Like We're become, a big country, yeah, and like, we don't do anything fast. Like becoming a more perfect yeah. union? 
Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Instead of it's having it happen tomorrow. That's it. One other thing, I, I'm writing, writing some notes here because I, I really think this is a fascinating idea. The human nature, the what should be thing. But what about time left? I mean, when you're young and you're 20, 21 years old, you have your entire life ahead of you. The idea that you're immortal, that nothing can happen to you. You've got all the time in the world left to, to accomplish these certain things. And when you hit about 35, 40 years old, at least with me, I don't know how it is with everybody else, but you start realizing yeah, uh, there may be more time behind me than is ahead of me. Mm-hmm. You know, how does that factor into your thinking? How does that take you from the utopian to the practical end? Wow, that's a great question. I think what you're describing is the beginnings of a midlife crisis where, um, yeah, and a lot of people don't believe in midlife crises. Um, they, <laughs> do. Do. They, they do <laughs> exist, and we all go through them um, at a certain point in our lives, usually in our 40s as we head into our 50s, partly in our 50s. Um, but it's that, it's that, it's that, what do I want to say? That deep down soul wrenching reckoning of where have you been? Where are you? And where do you want to be? What do you, you start thinking about what's my legacy? What do I want to be remembered for? Will there be any part of me left when I'm gone? And that stuff is, you know, that's dealing with your own mortality. It's dealing with your own history. You, that is a big question that usually takes a couple of years of therapy to work out. So I'm not going to be able to do that here. But those are some of the big themes of it, right? You know, have I lived the life that I wanted to live? You know, when you go back and think about your childhood, uh, this is one of this is an exercise we used to do in therapy um, with folks who may you know may have uh, some depression or some other things that they're 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 trying to deal with. Is think about think about what you did as a child. What did you do that came naturally to you? Was it art? Did you like trains? Uh, for me, it was trains. I I freaking love trains. I still do. Uh, <laughs> I I would have loved to have been a train engineer, but I never did. And do and look back on those things. And and were you the person that you wanted to be when you thought of yourself when you were eight, nine, 10 years old, or even maybe even a teenager? Did that transpire? And do you look back on that with regret or you do look back on your time as, you know, I did the best I could and now I have years ahead of me to execute those things that I thought about when I was a kid. Uh, just, just to ask though, I mean, is it, is it smart and wise to think of yourself and judge yourself as an adult through the eyes of an eight or 10 year old child? I don't think it's about judging. It's about looking back and, and thinking about, do I have the opportunity to, to, to do those things? I wanted to, to be the artist, you know, or whatever that I wanted to be, to learn the guitar because I wanted, because I loved Van Halen when I was a kid. <laughs> and now I'm, now I'm 55 and I want to learn how to play a guitar. Fuck it. Go ahead. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, it's one of those things. That's, that's when all those ideas come and that's when that, that, that reckoning comes. And uh, when you look back, and uh, I don't think it's about judging. I think we do naturally judge ourselves. That's just how we're wired. Sure. It's not about judging, but it's just about taking inventory and thinking about, okay, can I do this? Is it too late for me to go, um, you know, at 55 to go to medical school? Probably. You know what I mean? Um, I'm not going to become an astronaut, right? (laughs) So, you know, those those things aren't going to happen. So you have to reconcile that. But there's other things that you can do that maybe you, you talked about as a kid and that you can do now. And 
there's been times when I've done that when I thought, man, I really like you know this X Y Z thing, and when I was a kid, I'm going to try that again. Mm-hmm. You find out that no, I fucking hate it. Now. Well, that's what I mean. It, yeah, you know what that, I mean. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, there's there's this idea. But that's part of that reckoning. That's part of that reconciling is learning that oh, you don't have a taste for it now, and that's okay. But you can put that aside, knowing that that was great at the time and you loved it at the time, but it's not an important factor in your life now. I got gotcha. you. Know, that that yeah. whole to that whole that whole you're talking about a period in life that's very complicated. Well, when you said that though, I was I was thinking about something some other piece of research uh, it might have actually been my own <laughs> in my journals, but there's this uh, how do I say this? How do I, I have to drag this out of my mind here a little bit? But the inner voice, the inner this sort of inner child, okay. this shadow self there's a couple of different things here. What I think you're mm-hmm. talking about, uh, first and foremost, when you're talking about that eight or 10 year old kid, what did you want to do? What did you want to be? This is Emerson's, uh, what did he call it? I can't remember what he called it, but it's the same thing that I used to call back in my little more idealistic I, I days. I, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. I can't think of it. I think I know what you're talking about. I can't think of it either. Yeah. Um, I, I called it the voice. It's uh, yeah. what um, Emerson called the source of genius, basically, where you listen to what's going on inside of you, the internal, it's what's yours. You know what I mean? It's what mm-hmm. makes you, you. And that's apparent, that's that's active when you're eight, nine, 10 years old, maybe it's not developed or whatever. But I think you're talking about getting back to that organic sense of who and what makes you an individual, whatever mm-hmm. that is. Now, eh, the problem with that is that if you're, it's easy to compare that or I think conflate that or confuse that voice, especially if you've been, I don't know, traumatized or whatever as a child, to conflate that with the inner critic. Mm. You know, this, this internal voice that was sort of uh, inseminated or implanted in your mind as a child that, that uh, is almost like this, what is it? What is it I'm trying to, uh, there's a word for it. What was that? Do you remember the artist way? Did you ever read that? Mm-mm. No. There's a book about, that's where I got the idea for stream of consciousness writing. But there's this internal critic, this this voice in your head that's a child's voice that always tells you you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, yeah. you're not, yeah. it, it's sort of the source of, I guess, the imposter syndrome thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both of these things come from <laughs> this, uh, I'm much better when I'm prepared. <laughs> I love the organic nature of these conversations. Yeah, though, you know? I'm, I'm, I'm having to dig things out that have been sort of buried in my head for a, a long time. And I have it all worked out, but I have to access it. But they're both things that are child's voices. Yeah. You know, one's condemning. One's, it's almost like the good witch and the evil witch. You know, the, the one is the, the good witch is, I think, what you were referring to. What do I want to be when I grow up? How do I dream? What is the kind of human being that I want to be? How do I envision myself? We can also take this to Buddhism and singularity, you know, uh, self-actualization of becoming that person rather than dreaming about it. I have a lot I could talk about on that. But also that that negative internal child's voice, that inner child that's always or that inner demon that's always condemning who and what you are. And how do you compartmentalize that properly and effectively. You know, I would argue that that's not the child. No, 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 no. I'm fully engaged. I I think what you're talking about, though, isn't necessarily the child's voice. That's the negative voice. It's implanted, right? I think the negativity is taught. I think think kids go into the world um, with this world of wonder, of all possibilities, any Mm -hmm. possibility, you know, and there's, there's something else in the back of their head that's telling them, no, they can't do that. And I, it's easy to blame parents, but it's also, you know, your peers in school, teachers, often inadvertently done, you know, uh, you know, the kid who uh, comes from a background that isn't particularly intellectually stimulating 
wanting to become an astronaut and the, the, the parents saying, well, you know, I don't know if that's (laughs) possible. Uh, it's all of us. It's all of us. There's always somebody in your life that, that turns on that, that negative voice. I I literally wanted to be an astronaut. That was the very first thing I wanted to be when I was a kid. Who doesn't? Well, anybody who grew up in the seventies in the the wake of Apollo. (laughs) Yeah. I took off, I took off from school the day they launched the challenger, not the challenger, but the, uh, the first, the first shuttle, the enterprise. Enterprise. Yeah, the very first day when that, that thing went up for the very first time, I remember skipping school that day just to watch it launch. But I digress. I just I think that negative voice that you have in your head that tells you you can't, that's taught to you. Unless it's something that you've tried. As When you get older, you've tried. You've, you've tried things that maybe people didn't turn you off of, and you didn't do them to your expectation, tried and failed. Failure is oftentimes a bad word. It shouldn't be. Failure means you tried. And you learned through self-exploration what you're, you are and are not capable of, not through some voice of authority in the back of your head telling you, you can't do that, yeah. which, okay. I think is this, is, which I think is terrible. Is this part of the experience, though? Let's, let's bring this back to the social, the social conversation we were having. The inner voice that you can't means you tried and failed right? Mm-hmm. Is that what we're talking about when we're delineating between youthful idealism mm-hmm. and middle-age realism? That we have seen society try these things over and over and over again, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we know how it goes. Well, that's, that's the same thing, basically, self-experience, right? Whether, you, whether you've tried it or not, you've learned through, um, through observation, um, that's uh, what is that? Oh my God! What is the name of that type of learning? It's when you're watching somebody else learn something and you learn it. Ah, anyway, uh, that's basically what it is. You're watching, so you learn through experience, through others, um, whether something is working or not working, or possible or not possible. It doesn't mean that you have to experience it yourself in your body. It could be through someone else. Well, I guess where I'm, I'm trying to connect this and see if there is some connective tissue here is that a lot of people who are concerned, I was a liberal, I was a raging liberal 10 years mm-hmm. ago. And I, mm-hmm. I think that I realized and saw through my own experience and through the experience of others, like you're talking about, that I, mm-hmm. I think I realized human nature. I came to discover what human nature is, right? And it, it, it reminds me of what you were saying about the <laughs> trying and failing and realize it's not failure really if you tried how did you put that right. that that if you try that it's that you, i'm not sure how i put it i, I get i get into my thoughts and they just kind of come but, out. but it was really good because it, yeah. it doesn't mean it's failure if you tried and didn't succeed you just saw that it didn't work it's yeah, not it's failure not you know no. i can go out and i can try to climb the side of my apartment building it doesn't make me a failure that i can't climb like a squirrel well, there's the old axiom, right, about um, Thomas Edison trying to invent the light bulb a thousand times, um, but he learned 999 ways how not to make a light bulb, right? <laughs> right, but so, <laughs> so he didn't fail; he just kept learning, and, mm-hmm. and that's really. And I think failure, as uh, maybe not, I don't know. I think failure as a human being, it can be a learning process, and I think as an adult, you might become more aware of that and not judge yourself so harshly, um, hopefully. And and you just look at failure as, well, I blew it. Okay. Let me, that's how, I I don't want to do that again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Not going to do that again. Yeah. Um, So it's, it's all, it's all part of the process. And as you, as you grow older and as you hit that midlife crisis time, when that reckoning comes, that complete personal inventory that you go through (sighs) uh, in your forties and and early fifties, 
um, it can be a painful experience and it can be it can be really rough but when when you come out the other side of it you have a different understanding of the world I really believe that because I've been through it um, you just have a complete other understanding it's not like you're a different person you still like the same music and you still <laughs> like the same food but the way you look at the world is a little bit different and and I and I'd like to say it's it's with a little wisdom some people might say it's 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 you know as you get older you get more rigid in your thoughts you get less able to take on new ideas I'm not sure if that's the case I think it's because you become more able to filter out ideas that you know just yeah. simply are are just simply nonsense yeah. as as good of an idea as they might be it's not something that's going to that's not that's going to play out right yeah it's just it's just a different way of saying like when you're a baby at the baby level you learn how not to touch the hot stove yeah. at the adult level the hot stove can be a lot of things you know <laughs> Yeah. This reminds me, you're kind of, you're validating me a little bit with my attitude towards social media when you say that. Because when, mm -hmm. when you said that, we, you know how to filter out the bullshit, basically, mm -hmm. is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I've been seeing myself with my attitude toward people that I used to communicate with online. This will take us back to this little conflict we had a few weeks ago about um, just letting them go. Mm -hmm. You know, because you've heard it. So many times yeah. you understand the train of thought. You know, if I know you're sect, I can anticipate your argument. And I've been in this courtroom for 15 years. I know, counselor, where the argument is going. <sighs> Silence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. That's when it says when you know it's time to move on. Yeah. And, and you know when you're, you know, you're a little more aware, I think, at our age. Um, when you're talking with someone and their, their mind is already made up. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your breath. And that, that, and to me, I guess as a side note, that's really a shame for younger people because that's a time when new ideas should be just bombarding you. New ways of thinking, new ideas, new ways of doing things yeah. should be just flooding out of you mm -hmm. uh, and getting locked into a dogmatic belief um, with the cult of personality that we're in right now just feels like a shame to me. Yeah. I'm not saying that we didn't do that when you and I were kids. We probably did the same thing. It's I, just, sure. it's I just, wasn't political as a child, so thank God. I wasn't either. I yeah. didn't become political in, uh, until, uh, I mean, I used to pay attention to the news a little bit um, when I was in radio, but I became particularly political after uh, Bush Gore, after George Bush, Bush. Gore. George Bush yeah. did it. But we were just talking about this the other day. Actually, the girlfriend mentioned that uh, she, keeps, she keeps bringing this up, the same as we did. It's like mm -hmm. I really look back to the George Bush administration fondly, and I don't like that. <laughs> she yeah. wishes she's like I wish we had George Bush because the transition would be so much easier Bush happily transitioned to Obama back in 2000 well I think I, yeah and I think it's not necessarily his policies that we're looking for we're looking for someone presidential yeah. someone pre Normal. something predict something predictable normalcy you basically know what his speeches are gonna you basically know what a presidential speech is supposed to sound but going like. back 15 20 yeah. 15 18 years yeah. I despise that man. I thought I looked at him like I look at Trump now, fifteen, eighteen years ago. I look at Bush now as as kind of a just a just a nice old grandpa, you know, who's pa who's it's, painting dogs. We are the frog and, in the pot. Yeah, we sure we sure are, and and you know, it's not going to and much more of this, and and we would probably be living idiocracy. You know what I mean? <laughs> if we if we're not already, mm -hmm. uh, but but you're right, and uh, we've had that conversation before. I've had that conversation with a lot of people who are who are staunch um, Democrats, even liberals. Um, and who would say, you know, uh, we would welcome a George Bush administration right now, minus minus the wars. That would be great if we didn't have the wars. I could do without uh, without Dick Cheney. Yeah, and Dick and Dick Cheney pulling this. He was yeah, he was something special. But um, 
I, 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 you know, you're right. And I, I think when you, what we're talking about is just that, that wisdom of age, when you, you boil it down, it's just, it's just, you just get older, you get, you do get wiser. I know uh, from personal experience, younger people think as you get older, you just kind of become useless. And at 55, I've already got people in their twenties, not listening to a word I have to say. Sure. You know, I, but I, I also understand what it's like to be 25 and think that you know everything and that you, you know, everything that you do is, is a revelation and it's, and it's genius. And it, you know, <laughs> I, did I, you I, hear I about this guy named George Orwell? OMG. <laughs> you gotta read this book. It's called 1984. Oh my God. <laughs> Have you ever heard of animal farm? Fuck. <laughs> it's, it's this thing about animals, but it's really about the condom. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> Yeah. Did you know the Lord of the Rings was a book? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Lordy. But it's but it's the truth. We 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 uh, is, we, we, we jest, but it's I, I you know, one of the things that I think some people might lose when they get older is um the empathy for the younger generation. Um, hey, when you're older, you're, you're susceptible to the same bullshit. Feeling like you know everything, you've lived life, and you you know yeah. you, your way is the it's your way or the highway. I get that rigidity, and I know people like that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not like that. I, I hope anyway. And I look back at the people in those age groups, and I and I think, man, you've got so much to learn. But I'm also smart enough to know that they need to learn it on their own. I'm not going to teach them. Well, that's them the anything. key. But that's 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 both the key, and that's also the 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 corrosive effect because. Boy, how do you, especially I guess in this polarized society, this polarized country in which we live, is that can we afford that? You know, especially if they're if they're so animated, so activized, and so passionate and radicalized, yeah. having to learn lessons that were learned 70, 80 years ago, but being un- mm-hmm. unable to listen and, and not having any kind of social context or historical context, not having any sort of outside yeah. influence to teach them. Not necessarily yeah. change their mind. I say you must think this way, but here, here's something from 1945 you might want to consider. Yo, sure. Uh, you know that's why when people were comparing Trump to the, his administration to fascism and Hitler and Mussolini and stuff, I just I knew that that was those were ridiculous comparisons, uh, only because of what I know about history and uh, and what was going on at the time. And those kinds of things aren't going on now. Uh, we're, we're not going through that kind of stuff at this time. So that, the, the fascist argument just isn't there for me. But going back to um, you know what I, what, what I think you were kind of leaning toward based on the conversation I was talking about with empathy is, is we need that for each other now. I think it's important for even, even for older adults like us to model decent behavior for younger adults that are in their 20s and maybe early 30s, teens especially. And we're not doing that. We're not modeling empathy and grace and, and not being judgmental. I realize that sometimes their beliefs can become harmful. That's a different thing. I'm talking about the average, ordinary, next-door neighbor, mom and pop, who happen to be conservative, who happen to be Trumpsters. There's a reason that they believe that. Let's assume that they're not somehow indoctrinated or whatever. We would serve the country uh, a lot more if we would just start talking to each other. And we talked about this last week, you and I, we talked about talking to your neighbor over the fence, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I'm really leaning on that. That's kind of my mantra these days is let's just talk to each other. Can we just, can we just please talk to each other and not just, um, oh, you voted for Trump? I fucking hate you. Look, yeah, we got to stop. Right. We got to stop that. Or, or you, you, or you, su- you support Biden or oh, you're just a Democrat. Right. Um, we got to stop that. Creep. 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 Creep.
hardware, children's wear, ladies' lingerie. Oh, good morning, Mr. Tyler. Going down. <laughs> Did you watch Mar this week? I did. did I you? fucking loved it. Okay. That was the, yeah, and that the woman who was on uh, I don't I don't want to spend a lot of time because she was ridiculous. The part of his first guest, she was she was just off well, just spouting talking points. She was and, actually really good in and keeping on message. Yeah. In, yeah, in in the in the technical aspect of it. But holy shit. I don't have any hair, but if I did have hair, I'd want to rip it out. Yeah, and and well, and again, I tried to think. Okay, well, what, where, where's she coming from? What, can I can I have a little empathy for what she's doing? And I couldn't, because what she was saying it made no sense. No. She ha- she's a smart woman. She had to know what it's she was saying. Her made no, as soon as it hit, hit hit as soon as it came out of her mouth, she had to know it was bullshit. It's her job. That's yeah. that's the path to empathy. She is Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She is that whatever that that little Barbie doll that goes up and, sp- and speaks for Trump. It's her yeah. job. She's being retained. She is literally she's the retained attorney that I like to talk about in everybody's mind. You know how yeah. they they have that thing that post hoc rationalization that takes over. <laughs> she is it personified, but she's being paid. It's a role she is literally playing in the real world. She, you can't. I don't know why they give her airtime. I. I, he, Bill kept it together. I gave him a lot of props. Yeah, I thought I thought at one point he could have easily just shut her off, but I just, I just think he's got too much class for that. The reason I asked about uh, uh, Mar it, it ties into what you were talking about, and I'm, I'm actually I'm going to play this. Uh, oh, I, new, I, new I, rules and understanding how and why people who are not crazy, who are not fanatics, yeah, would vote for Donald Trump, but then go down ticket Republican. Yeah, you know, there's a reason. There has to be an understanding, and it's stuff that I've been talking about on the show, maybe too passionately, maybe a little bit too vehemently over the last yeah. couple of years. But it's exactly what I think. This is the crux of the problem. I think this is the crux of the Democratic problem, and what is fertilizing Trump soil. I agree. I agree a point. thousand percent. He, as usual, summed everything up that sort of we talk about. He really summed it up nicely in his, I think it's a two-minute bit that he does. No, it's longer than that. Uh, you want to listen to it with me, and we'll come back and uh, talk okay. about it. How's that sound? Okay. And finally, new rule with two Senate seats in Georgia still possible, seats that will make the difference between gridlock and progress. Democrats must figure out why so many voters still say to them, you're good enough, you're smart enough, but doggone it, we don't like you. Under the headline, Something Went Wrong, the New York Times described a post-election conference call between Democratic leaders where they wept, cursed, and traded blame. Wait, I thought we won this one. (laughs) Which we did. We did, and yes, ding-dong, the whiny little bitch is dead. (laughs) Celebration is in order. We took a big step toward saving democracy and in the process lost 280 pounds of ugly fat. All right, that's my last fat joke (laughs) for the next five minutes. But Democrats were supposed to flip the Senate and didn't. Supposed to flip state legislatures, not a one. And they lost seats in the House in a year that was so much about making people aware of racism. Their share of minority votes went down. The message to Democrats from so much of the country seems to be, we don't like Trump, but we still can't bring ourselves to vote for you. If Cracker Jack was made of popcorn and dog shit, 
and half the people threw out the popcorn? Popcorn should want to know why. <laughs> Liberals can either write off half the country as irredeemable, or they can ask, what is it about a D next to a candidate's name that makes it so toxic? Let's ask Ruben Gallego. He's a congressman from Arizona, and he was asked how his Democrats could do a better job connecting to Latinos. He said, first, start by not using the term Latinx, which the vast majority of Latinos have never heard of, and when they do, don't like it. Who likes it? Pandering white politicians who mistake Twitter for real people. And don't get it that Latinx is like fetch. You can try to make it happen, but it's never gonna. <laughs> Virginia Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger said after the election, if we are classifying Tuesday as a success, we will get fucking torn apart in 2022. And <laughs> that's a Congresswoman. <laughs> She was urging members not to talk about defunding the police. James Clyburn agreed. Defund the police is killing our party, he said. Pennsylvania Democrat Connor Lamb says Democratic rhetoric needs to be dialed back. It needs to be rooted in common sense. Thank you. Thank you. There in my opinion, is the crux of the problem. Democrats too often don't come across as having common sense to a huge swath of Americans. And these are people who believe in QAnon. <laughs> but as I've said before, politics in this country is binary. You have to wear everything anyone on your side does. Republicans are the party of don't wear masks, kids in cages, lock her up, and Democrats are the party of every hypersensitive social justice warrior woke bullshit story in the news. They're the party that disappears people or tries to make them apologize for ridiculous things. Anne Hathaway apologized last week because in her new movie she plays a witch a fictional character that has three claw-like fingers, and that's offensive to people with limb differences. Ay. The week before, the NHL's Arizona Coyotes dropped a player after it came out in the press that when he was in eighth grade, he bullied a disabled kid. Yes, that's a bad thing to do. But are we really going after people for what they did in middle school now? Democrats already lost seats for going after what Brett Kavanaugh did in high school. Common sense. Last year, I read about how NBC held an emergency meeting to determine if Mario Lopez should be fired from his job at Access Hollywood. I thought, holy shit, did he sexually assault somebody? No, he went on a podcast, and when the host brought up the trend of liberal parents letting toddlers pick their gender identity, he said, my God, if you're three years old and you're saying you think you're a boy or a girl, I just think it's a dangerous as a parent to make that determination. Cue the groveling apology, followed by America saying, uh, yeah, I think Mario's right. Maybe kids shouldn't make big life decisions while you still need to make choo-choo noises to get the food in their mouth. <laughs> I can do this all day. Cite stories big and small 
that are endlessly on people's news feeds that add up to a constant drip, drip, drip of these people are nuts. Everybody heard about that story out of San Francisco about a guy who got on a crowded elevator with a female professor and when she asked what floor, he said, women's lingerie. You know, a little joke for which he earned a formal complaint because it left her shaken. Shaken? Who are these jellyfish? Like the woman who almost derailed Biden's campaign because he kissed the back of her head before she went out to make a speech. She said her brain couldn't process what was happening. Really? Your brain couldn't process that? Like string theory or wormholes? <laughs> An old man was trying to show support in his old man way. She said she was embarrassed, shocked, confused. Well, then the outside world isn't for you. And, <laughs> and certainly running the world isn't. I talked to a guy in the Midwest once who told me this story about the day he went out to get his car in the supermarket parking lot, but couldn't back out because a mother and her very young daughter were standing behind his car, which was next to their car which had a Hillary bumper sticker on it. And the little girl was screaming at her mother, who was profusely apologizing to the child. And he said to me, I just can't let people like that take over this country. That's what people vote on, not policy. Democrats kept saying in the campaign, you can't possibly think Trump is preferable to what we're selling. And many voters keep saying, yes, we can. In fact, our primary reason voting for him is to create a bulwark against you because your side thinks silence is violence and looting is not. Because you're the party of chasing speakers off college campuses and making everyone walk on eggshells and replacing let's not see color with let's see it always and everywhere, formerly the position of the Ku Klux Klan. It would be so easy to win elections if we would just drop this shit. Democrats need to listen to our new president-elect's old boss. This idea of purity and you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff, you should get over that quickly. Quickly, like before they vote in Georgia. All right, that's our show. I want to thank Max Brooks, Caitlin Flanagan, and Jenna Ellis. We'll be back next week for our big... That piece right there, Brian, was something <laughs> perfect. Brilliant. It was brilliant. It's one of the best things I have ever seen him do. Yeah, it really nailed it completely. And he nailed that 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 collective anxiety and malaise we're all sort of going through, trying to figure out why why are we trying to, you know, what is so uncomfortable about our own party? Um, and he really just nailed it down, right? It's just, it's become, it's become something that's not about running the government anymore. It's become something about um, you aren't the way I want you to be, so you need to be punished. You need to be canceled. Your career needs to be destroyed because you offended me. Right. You know? Yeah, Fuck did you off. catch the part? Uh, he was talking about the man on the elevator who yeah, a woman asked what floor he said women's lingerie did you catch where that came from the crux of the the foundation of the joke he was telling uh Aerosmith. I, 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 yeah that's right i knew it was somewhere <laughs> i'd heard it somewhere i wanted i was going to say a movie but you're right yeah loving an elevator that's right that offended her <laughs> the outside world is not for you <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> it's exactly, I mean, it was, it was ideal. And this, this idea about wearing everything the rest of your party does. It's like we, we talked about the, the poster board material mm-hmm. and how it, it applies both ways. Everything Trump's most rabid, batshit, uh, fundamentalist fanatic does reflects upon the Republican Party. When Democrats think of the Republican Party, they think of the far right. They think of these people, the QAnon folks, right? Because they reflect on the rest of the party. What Democrats do not understand or do not seem to understand or want to understand is what happens and how that applies to the far left, to cancel culture, to kicking people off of college campuses, letting two-year-olds yeah. decide their gender identity, what the inner yeah. voice, what the voice in their head is telling them. At two years old, to determine who and what they are the rest of their lives. This reflects just as brightly on the centrist, the sensible part of the Democratic Party, and there are vast swaths of the country, me included, who Mm -hmm. do not want to vote for that. We've seen the trajectory of the Tea Party of the far right and how it's affected Republicans. We We have lived it for the last four years. We detest the notion that the same thing is going to happen to Democrats and the far left is going to hijack this party, yank it so far into wokedom that it's going to be yeah. insufferable in another four years. Yeah. Am I wrong here? You're not wrong. This party's going to split itself. And, um, and I, just like the Republicans did with the Tea Party, um, I forget how long ago that was, but it seems like forever ago. 10 or 11 been, years. Yeah, it's been a while. Same thing happened then. But now it's, again, it's a pendulum thing. And now you have both sides, right? You have two extreme sides. The rest of us are caught in the middle, right? What was, the, this, moderate. What was the woman's name? The, uh, there, there are three people that I wrote down. James Clyburn, he's been on television the last week or so just deploring this whole defund the police thing that went on all summer. He thinks that's oh, yeah. a huge problem, a huge oh, problem for down-ticket Democrats in this election, why they didn't gain more seats. Connor Lamb they're, they're, and the Spanberger woman, we are going to get <laughs> fucking destroyed, she says, in yep. four years yep. if we yep, consider exactly right. this a victory. It's true. There it's are absolutely true. some voices out there. There are some sensible fucking voices out there, yeah. and I'm afraid they're going to get drowned out. Because yeah. I saw AOC go on television last week and just start destroying these voices. Oh, you're outdated. You're, the reason we lost is you were using outdated means of communication. In other words, you weren't on Twitter like Trump enough. <laughs> and like she is. Yeah. This is yeah. what I'm afraid of. You're right. I think I think we're just in the in, in the embryonic stages of this. I don't think I don't think we're far enough out of the election to really see it. I don't think we're we're, we're I don't think we're at that thirty thousand foot view enough to be able to see the civil war and the further fracturing that's coming in the Democratic Party after the first of the year after this election certified and Biden takes office. Well, let me take the optimistic side and, and just say <laughs> that gonna, I'm going to I'm going to demand you show your work. We're hearing more voices like Clyburn's who are coming out, right? More Democrats who are coming out and saying, eh, you guys really are kind of, you're kind of the extreme side of the party. And more people like that and like the, uh, the I forget the, the representative's name who talked about we're going to fucking get destroyed. Spanberger. 
Spanberger. More voices like that are coming around. They're, I think they're becoming less afraid of, of trying to be one big tent and be more likely to say, eh, that's kind of the extreme of our party. And maybe they don't get supported in the next election, right? Maybe, maybe somebody else gets supported. I think we have to start having conversations like they did um, in the early part of this decade, or early part of uh, uh, like around 2010 when they started talking about primarying somebody. You know, somebody's going to need to get primaried if they don't get in line. And, you know, and again, that's, that's my optimism. I think that the, the more of these voices we start hearing where they're basically saying, look, the, uh, the AOC types, even uh, Bernie's not quite that far out, are just not representative of the Democratic Party. They may be representative of part of the Democratic Party, the extreme Democratic Party, but they're not representative of the moderate Democratic Party. And I think we're starting to hear that, right? We're starting to hear that rumblings of that where, you know, they're, they're just going to basically throw the AOCs of the, of the party uh, right under the bus. I'm glad you brought up the primarying tactic. And I remember in 2010, remember the Tea Party massacre in 2010, the midterms? Yes, I do. Yeah. And that was the tactic they used. Remember the guy, what was his name? I can Eric Cantor. He was sort of a moderate Cantor, yeah, he yeah. He was a moderate Republican. He was talking about, you know, sensible compromises or whatever and he got his ass kicked. He was one of the mm-hmm. leaders of the Republican Party. He got primary mm-hmm. and got his ass beat in 2010. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Also, the Republican autopsy. Do you remember that after 2012? How they were no. all saying they have to they have to do this real soul searching. They have to oh. do this. We were talking about personal inventories earlier that the party had to do a personal inventory and find out why we're losing so many people. This was after 2012. It's 2016 and Donald Trump is suddenly the nominee. This is why I'm going to ask you to show your work. I understand where sounds, you're coming sounds from. Sounds like their inventory worked because they got a Republican that who's clearly unelectable elected to office, and they uh, kept and they've been keeping the Senate right. So it sounds like their inventory may have been a benefit. They may they, have done something right. They were talking about this in a moderate tone, though, in 2012. Mm-hmm. How do mm-hmm. we how do we appeal to more people? A bigger tent. That was the tone they were using in 2012, and it went completely the, we the opposite way. But no, but there was a time when we basically stopped hearing about the Tea Party. The we Tea Party hearing about. They just rebranded themselves. They're the Freedom Caucus now. Oh, is that what they call themselves? Yeah, that's Justin Amash, the guy up there in Grand Rapids. Before he dis- he, he came He's out done. and denounced Trump and all that, but he was a Freedom Caucus member. He was a Tea Party member. The the Tea Party brand became sour at some point, <laughs> and they had to rebrand. Like at Xfinity's no longer Comcast, right? That's exactly <laughs> yeah, what they did. They're still there. But call themselves something different. Yeah, I, I just I, I, I appreciate the optimism and I, I don't want to condemn it because there is, I guess, a possibility, a reality that exists moving forward where Joe Biden leads on this, where his tone sort of leads the Democrats toward the moderate, sensible, you know, destination. I based on the experience of the last 10, 12 years. And based on everything I'm seeing, everything I'm seeing right now, the fracturing and the fragmentation of media, social media has become more of a thing in the last 10 years than less. I don't see how that can possibly realistically happen. I think it's, it has to go the other way. Yeah. I don't well, want to be that guy. But again, I, I, I have to insist, Brian, I, I, I appreciate the optimism. I don't want to kill it. What I want you to do is I want you to show me the reality of the path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have that right now. Yeah, I can't see it either. I want to, man. I do. 
Uh, you know, it might be a leadership change. It might be, maybe it's, maybe it's time for Pelosi to, she's 80. It might be, you know, and, and maybe it's time for her to, um, not that she's any less of a leader because she's 80, but I'm just thinking maybe it's, maybe it's time to go enjoy the rest of it. What about life. McConnell? You know, McConnell too, you know, that old, that old leadership, maybe that's what it's going to take is, is some of the younger, um, now, now Gen Xers that are, uh, that are now in the age group for getting into those kind of positions, the uh, not, not too old, but old enough age group um, to get into those leadership positions and kind of change direction a little bit. I just think that I'm optimistic when I see leaders pointing out the extremities, I guess is what I want to say. Have you ever read the Game of Thrones books? Uh-uh. That's what I've been reading lately. I've been trying to decompress, so I haven't touched these stacks of books talking about propaganda and human nature and stuff. I just need, I need to breathe. Let's go to Game of Thrones. I'm going to read the books this time. That was the the thought process. But there's a line that I don't think was in the TV show. Uh, Tyrion Lannister says that most men would rather ignore uh, hard truths than face them. I think it is in in the show. It might be, but he's telling Jon Snow this before he goes to the wall. And he tells John about what the reality of the wall is going to be, that it's going to suck. No, it's supposed to be a noble endeavor. We are the Black Knights of the Wall, blah, 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 blah. And he gets there eventually, and later on in the book, he's like, Tyrion was the only one who told me the truth. He's the only one, and he remembered him telling that most people would uh, rather ignore a hard truth than face it. And I'm afraid that, not you specifically, Brian, but I think a lot of us are right now experiencing Jon Snow's voyage to the wall. (laughs) I don't think we're actually seeing where we are and where this is going. And I'm terrified of that because it's going to hit people like a sledgehammer, and it's only going to throw kerosene on the bilateral radicalization that we've experienced over the last few years when it finally hits. Because they're not going to be able to face it even then. I think you're right. But, but because the reality is, is almost unthinkable. It, reality right. doesn't change. I had this thing that I wrote up, and I'm, I wish I was writing more, Brian. I really do. I wish I had that, that muscle reflex to sit down mm-hmm. and poke stuff into, into the word processor. I, I just don't have it anymore. I think mm-hmm. not being on Facebook has taken that away from me a little bit. But <laughs> I wrote this thing in my notebook the other day. It's like, I don't know what the formula for nitroglycerin is, but let's pretend it's ammonia and bleach. Okay, And if you don't really think that what you're throwing into the cauldron is ammonia, if you think, I don't know, it's sugar water, and you keep throwing it in there, throwing it in there, throwing it in there, physics and reality are sort of the same thing, right? It doesn't matter. The cauldron, the mixture, doesn't give two shits whether or not you think that sugar water you're throwing in there, it's actually ammonia, and eventually it's going to explode whether you like it, realize it, accept it, or not. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. That's a great uh, metaphor. And that's how I, I kind of, I, I feel like that's where we're headed. Like I, people are just ignoring it. They're, they're blaming everybody else. They're refusing to see their own contribution of ammonia to the social cauldron. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how you frame it, how you rationalize it. The post hoc reasoning that goes on, the internal litigation doesn't fucking matter. Reality and physics, physics will eventually take that concoction and it will blow up in your face. Okay. That's what I'm afraid of. I, I think it's I think it's a valid fear, um, but my you know unbridled optimism always comes through, and I'm thinking and I'm thinking that uh, I do appreciate uh, that. By the way, let me let me reiterate that I do appreciate it. Yeah, and I just think that we're in the beginning stages of realizing there's something wrong. We're just beginning to diagnose the problem. We don't have a treatment yet. 
you know, using medical, using a medical analogy. Mm-hmm. It's like we've kind of identified the symptoms. Now let's diagnose the problem. And I think we're in the middle of diagnosing the problem. And then we can begin the treatment. And I think that'll happen over the next two years before the midterms. And what happens if you go to the doctor, you get diagnosed with cancer, you don't like what the doctor tells you, so you go find one who will tell you it's just a, just a cramp. Who'll tell you what you want to hear. <laughs> Again, cancer yeah. doesn't care. The reality doesn't, doesn't matter. You're That's still right. going to be consumed by cancer. But if you, re- right. if you refuse to face the hard truth and decide to go find someone who will tell you it's just a cramp, it doesn't change anything. No, you're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think we give it a little time. I, you know, the, the midterms are going to be rough because it's always the out party right. that tends to do well in a midterm. The chances that the Democrats are going to get their asses handed to them in the midterm is already pretty high. That just woman's voice a- is screaming in my head right now. <laughs> Spanberger. We're going to get oh, fucking oh, yeah. throttled if we consider yeah. this a victory. She's she's absolutely right. And as long as that voice is continues to be heard... I think the problem can be addressed. But if, if, if they're going to put their head in the sand and be afraid of what AOC might do, or uh, I think Bernie's pretty much, I mean, he, I feel like he's kind of backed away from everything at this point, but uh, people like, uh, like AOC um, and, you know, their, their voices, uh, I think will become, I don't know how to say, I, I don't think they're going to become dimmer because I think she's just going to get louder and more obnoxious. Uh, but I think as she does that, she'll sound even more ridiculous. Um, and then, you know, calmer, more practical heads will prevail. But it takes the talk. It takes the conversation. And as long as the moderate Democrats are willing to have those conversations and continue to talk about getting fucking annihilated in the midterms, then may- maybe they can do something about that. I mean, she's a, you know, she's a representative and she can do whatever, she, you know, with, within her power. She can continue to screech and, and holler about um, – you know, the Green New Deal and all these things that sound like great utopian ideas, but are are typically impractical and un, unpragmatic. Um, but again, the, the, the rest of the party just has to step in and kind of kind of uh, marginalize that. That's the word I'm looking for, mm-hmm. to marginalize uh, those folks. It'd be a lot easier to marginalize with people that are more mature, more understanding, more wise than it will be to marginalize with people who are younger and have no real experience with um, practical things in life, I guess is what I'm trying to say. How do you reconcile marginalizing the extreme voices with virtual echo chambers of only hearing those extreme voices? How do you marginalize them when the people who desire to hear them have the means to only hear that? How do you, how do you puncture that echo chamber toward moderation? Well, I, you know, we have to use our own example. When What woke us up? When did we, because we were part of that echo chamber. We both were. What happened to make you go, hmm. Introspection. The thing you, you say know? that is so rare. Well, I think there was introspection, but something caused, something flipped that switch to go, oh, wait, 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 wait. I wait, had seeds. I had seeds that had been planted. I didn't like, yeah. I mean, we, we've talked about all those. So that's right. So yeah. those seeds get planted and, and the, the rational wing of the party, which is what they should call themselves, they should uh, they should continue to plant those seeds. And people who are rational and reasonable voters, actors in the in the in the country, I think we'll start planting those seeds. You know, you have to plant those seeds of cognitive dissonance. It's it's PR basically. And once you do that, then you have to hope that the rational brain takes over and people start to do just like you and I did, probably like a lot of your listeners did and went, hmm, hmm. Maybe the way I'm thinking isn't the only way to think. 
maybe there's something to this other party and what they're saying and what they have to say and and how the extreme of our party has gone just a little too extreme, right? Bill said it perfectly. Uh, you, you're good enough. You're smart enough. But doggone it, I, I don't, don't like, like you. you. <laughs> I just don't like you. Right. And that's that really sums up how I feel as a Democrat. There's two things. Uh, hope the rational brain takes over. We had a conversation a few weeks ago talking about how the rational brain is typically suffocated by the emotional one. How do you justify or rationalize or reconcile that hope with what we have already expressed that we know about human nature? How do we expect that to happen on mass? Well, I think I think it's just it's just a mixture of a lot of things. I mean, we're starting to hear more mainstream voices talking about the the emotional manipulation of of social media and the echo chamber. Mm-hmm. We're starting to hear mainstream rational voices talking about the things that are wrong with the way we're getting our information and how we're living under two completely different data sets. Mm-hmm. We're hearing people talk about this on mainstream this media channels. Thank God. So this is this is something, right? And the more of those voices uh, who uh, combine with the political voices saying, oh, wait a minute, this extreme stuff just isn't cutting it. Maybe the people who are stuck in those echo chambers will figure out a way to poke their head out. Uh, you know, like the gophers and, and, and you know, the prairie dogs and, and go, wait, wait a second. Maybe there's more to this other argument than, than what I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. It requires you to be able to have an adult thinking brain. You know, an adult thinking brain can hold two competing ideas in their head at the same time mm-hmm. and still not have to get dogmatic about either one of them and not have to toss out either one of them. Be able to have both competing thoughts occupying the same space in their brain. That's what wisdom is. That's what an adult mm-hmm. can do. And I think that's what it's going to take. It's going to take more of those conversations, conversations like you and I have, podcasts like this one, mainstream people going on the media and talking about how we're not getting the same information. We're not getting the same data. You know, we're hearing about Fox News kind of pulling away from Trump. Their news product is actually very good. Uh, it's their commentary stuff that's sure, garbage. primetime crap. Uh, yeah, the primetime stuff is, is garbage. Uh, it's that. But we're hearing that stuff now. But we're kind of in it. It's got to get to kind of a critical mass where people who don't pay attention to politics as much as people like us do start hearing it too and go, hmm, wait a minute. There's something to this argument that the information that my my uncle is getting is way different than the information I'm getting. And no wonder he thinks that way. Fair enough. That is a wild card. Social media awareness, I guess, uh, that could lead to informational consumer um, sophistication. It could. It could possibly. Consider me skeptical. I won't be holding my breath on that. But we also were talking earlier today, before we uh, started recording, about Brian Stelter. He was on Reliable Sources, this fucking toothache of a program I keep poking every Sunday morning. (laughs) And he finally, he's the first one, I think, that I can remember. I could be wrong about this. He's the first one that took another thing that I've been talking about for two years. It's the people. It's the people, it's the media consumer, the informational consumer who is partially to blame for the problem we're in. He started talking about supply and demand. Why is it that people demand to have this disinformation filth fed to them on a regular basis? Even Fox News now is not pure enough for a lot of these folks. They're moving over to AON and Newsmax. Mm -hmm. Their, Their ratings are spiking after the election because these people are saying that Trump won, Trump won, he's he won by millions of votes. He's going to be inaugurated or re-inaugurated, I guess, uh, in January. So that sort of, it, it runs counter to this hope. 
I don't see it as ideologically specific. I see a lot of people who, on the left, who are just as isolated within these echo chambers and who have no interest, I don't think, in ever Hmm. moderating their tone or ever finding any sort of other information that doesn't reinforce their worldview. The Jean Calul book reinforces this. They don't want it. Their identity is too tethered to it. It's too painful for that many people to challenge their own identity, which is fused with their ideology. If they challenge the ideology, they are challenging themselves. I can't Maybe I'm wrong. I admit this. I, I hope to God I am, but I can't see this getting better. I think people are going to just encase themselves within the granite of their own ideologies to, mm. to protect the identity rather than admit, oh, well, maybe I was a fanatic. How many people left Jonestown as opposed to those who ended up dying on the ground? Yeah, yeah. It's a, you know, it's, it's a national problem of weak egos. Um, you know, people just aren't strong enough to be able to hold their own ideas together. So they have to, they have to latch on to, uh, whatever wagon is going through town. And, it's a religion. And, uh, and it's, it's that, yeah. It's a religious mind. And it's still early too. And I, I do agree with you, uh, when you say that there, are, there appear to be a, like, I, Spanberger made her way. She poked through the noise this week, right? So did this other guy, Lamb. Uh, Clyburn's yeah. words were out there. It is poking through. It, it is gurgling to the top, but. I have to remind uh, you and the listeners about 2016. There was this dead zone after Trump's election where liberals, the vanquished liberals, were quite quiet up until right around the time of the inauguration. They sort of licking their wounds and sort of maybe girding their loins for the next battle is the best way to put it. I don't know. But right. we're, 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 barely, we're not even two weeks past the election yet. I don't think that the radical counter-assault has begun. I don't mm. think it started yet. And what happens when it does? God. You make some really, really, really interesting points that kind of scare the shit out of me. And by the bit. way, I am available for children's parties still. <laughs> I still think that, you know, I really rely on just the, the, the just kind of the laws. You brought up physics, the laws of mathematics and, and the bell curve and all these things where, you know, you have these loud, extreme voices, but they're the rest of us, probably the 80%, who are the, the, the moderate majority. Mm-hmm. And I think the moderates are going to hear these messages. And they're the ones that are more likely to kind of listen to something and, and maybe not be dogmatic about um, their beliefs so much and be able to hear some rational uh, conversation about, um, you know, the, the extreme of the party and how that's not just not reality. And so they just begin to kind of fade away and become irrelevant. I, I believe at some point they're, they're, just, they're just irrelevant to most people. I sent you Sullivan's article this week. Did you get it? I did. I did. I really liked it. Yeah, Good. he talks about how the center, the moderate majority, is being outweighed by the extremes, shouted down by the extremes. How he compares that to Weimar or Weimar, however you say it. I call it Weimar Germany back in the 1920s, pre- the prelude to Hitler. How the mm-hmm. democracy and the government itself was delegitimized, right? So if that's the case, and I think it is, I think the extreme right and the extreme left Despite the vote, I agree that there, there was a moderate majority speaking in this vote. But what happens if the extremes and the coverage and the informational echo chambers, what if they marginalize the, the majority? I, you know, I, I just feel like the majority would just push back at some point, doesn't it? The, to me, that just makes sense. I, I could be wrong, but it just, it just makes sense to me that at some point the mass 
the people who actually make up most. I mean, we saw this happen even during Reagan, you know, with his the his uh, silent. Remember, they call it the silent majority, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who happen to be more Republican types. Right. Um, but uh, you know, the, but there is this moderate, including Republicans, Republicans and Democrats, all moderates. I would say the middle eighty percent. At some point, we push back. You know, and, and just kind of put them in their place. And they continue to make a lot of noise, make a lot of people nervous. But at the end of the day, the policies uh, that do get passed are pretty much right down the middle. Let me give you a nightmare scenario. 2024, we have a choice between Donald Trump and AOC. How do they push back? Hmm. Well, I, I don't. I, I have to say I don't think that could ever be a reality. But then I said the same thing in 2016. <laughs> um, it assuming that she managed to get through the primaries and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, 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 God, well, I don't know. I I don't even know how to process that. That's marginalizing. That is marginalizing the moderate majority, isn't it? It is. Um, but I, I, I just don't see that as, as being anywhere near a reality because, the, I believe the moderate majority just she just wouldn't get through the primaries, you know. I never thought Trump would, um, but he he had something else that she doesn't. That's um, uh, this. He's got that secret sauce, whatever that is. He's got that can. can oh, he, Sullivan mentioned that in the article. The, demonic just, skill or something like that. Yeah, he's just got. He's just the, the he's the <laughs> carnival barker man, and he knows. He, that's that's his. Uh, that's his God-given talent that he that he has, and um, and but AOC. Okay, I, I'm with she, you. Let's... She has, she she's you know she's the extreme side, but she just she just sounds irrational and screeching and and uh, I, I I let I, me grant you know, let me grant you the point. Let me grant you that yeah. point. Let let's talk about the likelihood. Then maybe she's not it. But what about the forthcoming liberal demagogue? We have one on the right. Where's the one on the left? Maybe, maybe there's somebody out there who has the radical secret sauce. What happens then? Who's somebody who's worse and more batshit than AOC, but appeals to more people going against Donald Trump in 2024? Well, then, then you know, just you let the election play out, and then you hope that the other chambers uh, are able <laughs> to keep that person in check, right? right. Kind of like basically what we did for the last four years. Pretty much for the last four years. That's why you have checks and balances. The reason I'm bringing those. this up, that's, that's not the context of the question. I'm, I'm talking about marginalizing the moderate majority, how okay. that can happen, and what are they supposed to do? This, is, this goes back to the Sullivan article of the extremes who are outweighing the majority of the people in the middle. Well, they're out shouting. I don't know if they're outweighing, but they're definitely out shouting. They're definitely mm-hmm. louder than the people in the middle. Um, I, I just don't, I don't know how to answer that intelligently without giving yeah. it a, a, a lot of thought because I, you know, I, again, the side of me always believes that the, that the moderate majority will always in okay. the end prevail. Yeah. I'm, I'm speaking out of fear here. This is how I sort of sense things going. I can't prove it. I just, I'm not even going to say I know it's true because it might not be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but yeah. This, this is kind of the track that I see us on looking down the trail. These are the rocks and the boulders that I see blocking it a mile up. Right. Mm-hmm. And it could, it, mm-hmm. it could change. And maybe Biden will have that secret sauce. You like to talk about that secret rhetorical sauce, that salve, that bomb that brings us together and gets us to sing Kumbaya and remember a better time. Mm-hmm. You know, that could happen. Theoretically, maybe Mitch McConnell moderates himself. You know, and they start working together and we slowly bring the temperature down. I don't see Maybe. that happening. I want to believe it, 
And I appreciate your optimism. Everybody's optimism. I think if line. it's possible, the possibility is more there now than it has been only because of Biden's right. history in the Senate and the relationships that he built over 47 years in politics. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I had a, a rather optimistic podcast when Biden, I think he may have he may have just gotten the, the, the nomination or he was very close to getting it. And I said in that podcast that he was the he may not be able to do it, but he is the only one who possibly could even begin to unite this country. And he got elected. Sure. He has won the election. All indications are he's going to be pre- I'm not 100 percent sure that they're not going to jack with the Electoral College. But uh, that's mm-hmm. just PTSD after four we years. Got to, the, we got about three weeks and yeah, then we'll know for right, sure. Right, right, <laughs> three or four weeks. Right. So I can't. Boy, I can't. I, I feel like Tyrion. Yeah. I feel like I have to face the hard truth of it. We all do. No, we don't. Oh, you mean you're saying? I thought you meant we all feel like we have to face the hard truth of it. No, we yeah. don't. But we all do have to face the hard truth of what's happening here. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I think you nailed it. I think that the one hope we have is has got to be this awareness of what the technology and the insulation inside of these mutually exclusive echo chambers, what it's doing to us, and how we're perceiving it, how we're perceiving reality completely separate from everyone else. That's mm-hmm. the only way, right? That's it. That's it. And people have to talk about it. And people in mainstream media have to talk about it. And when you combine those two recipes together, the recipe of of Spanberger and we're going to get fucking annihilated in 2022 and the conversation of, you know, um, we're living in two different under two different sets of facts, combine those two ideas together and come out of that space with some some salve that will quell this diagnosis, you know, that will cre- that will that will uh, fight the problem, because I think that's those two th- those two things together, um, people talking about those things and and act- and acting on those things. I think that's where we make the. Cr- Did I lose you? About it, you might have. You might have a little bit. It's super windy. I lost you there for a second. Yeah, where we. Can you repeat like the last 10, 15 seconds? Do you remember? Yeah, I, I was, no, I was just kind of re- repeating myself again. It's just, you know, at event, you know, that's, that's what we have to do is those two conversations need to be had and they need to be had in the context of each other, you know, and, and get us out from under this, this idea that we're living under two different sets of facts, two different Americas. We're not, we're, we're, we're all one America and we all have, the truth is the truth. And somebody needs to be able to talk about that and point it out and then combine that, those conversations with if, with like Spanberger, if we don't get our shit together on this extreme left, we're going to get our asses handed to us. And that's what it is. And even people, you know, on the left, we, we tend to divide things up left and right. But but this can be divided into all kinds of gradients. Um, there's the extreme left, the left, the liberals, and there's people like us who are sort of moderately left. Um, even us, even we're living under two different facts. It's not just the conservatives versus the Democrats. It's the moderates versus the extremes. Right, you know, and, right. and we're, we're just not seeing the same information. God, we got to figure out how to get that right. That is the diagnosis of the, of the illness right yeah, there. I wish Jacques Ellul was still alive because he talked about uh, partitioning, which I equated and uh, sort of interpreted as identity politics, how you divide, you divide everybody up into these little specific groups. He mm-hmm. wrote this book in 1965, 1964, 65, whatever it was, long before the Internet. What happens when you take that partitioning and then you start feeding each one of these little fragments their own version of reality, which is <laughs> counter to the one next to them. It's fractured. It's fractured. Everything's How do fractured. you deal with that? I don't know if you do. I don't know if you do. 
it could be, you know, uh, uh, you know, from a nihilistic point of view, this could be the beginning of the end for uh, for us as a as a society um, until we get a, uh, a handle on this um, this social media business and, and until someone comes along and defines news for what it is and defines what, when things aren't news, when it's just opinion. He who lacks the ability to tell truth from falsehood does not remain free. It may not be the end of society. But the end I of think, this, this society. The yeah, end of this, I, society. this democracy. This reality that we're living yeah, in right now I, may be different in 20 years from now. Yeah, we're, we're ripe for totalitarianism. Somebody sure who will come in with a big club and say, I will give you peace. Mm-hmm. And this is how I'm going to do it. You're going to do what I say. This is how it happens. It really is. But I try to be optimistic. I try to continue to remain optimistic. I appreciate that. I do appreciate that, Brian. I do. I just, I, I, I need you to help me out. I need you to show your work. Well, That's I appreciate, all. I appreciate your pessimism because it causes me to think a little bit and not just be Pollyanna. Yeah. You know, I do. I am available for children's parties. <laughs> Tell your friends. <laughs> Escapingthecave.com. That's the website. Facebook page is up. Being a little more active on there. I've realized I've got to promote this thing a little bit more. So if you like this show, by the way, God damn it, share it. It's not that much to ask. I'm your friend. Jerk. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for clicking in. We will be back once again next week. And I'll say it again. I say it every week and never do it, but I might have another podcast for you this week. Don't get your hopes up. Till next time, so long. start that damn thing too late.